0: Nehemiah is the story of God keeping His promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through His people for the flourishing both spiritually, through ordering their lives around His Word, and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program. And the dependence of God's people in his power to affect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through his church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people so that now through his continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and his world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city. Kids ages three to kindergarten can, or three to pre-k, can head down with uh, Mrs. Gilmartin and the Holy Cross Kids Worship. Uh, the rest of you, if you turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter nine, uh, part of the text is printed for you in your order of worship. Not the whole thing. Uh, it's mainly because it's the whole chapter. Hard to do that in our little trifold. Um, I don't want you to panic about that though, because we're going to run through that pretty quick. So. I know some of you are like, Rick, I've heard you preach for a long time on four verses. And you're right, but don't, don't, get, uh, don't get panicky. Okay, we're going to be all right. So it, it's not too much to say, I think, uh, that Christianity is about the renewal of the world. It's, it's not about uh, a private spirituality. It's not about uh, the, the salvation of individual souls without any uh, touch on the rest of creation. The Bible gives us a vision of God coming to set the whole world to rights. The world which we messed up. And He comes and He does that through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. This book, Nehemiah, helps us to see that this is done, as we've spent the last nine weeks looking at that this is done through the renewal of people who then go and and are sent to renew systems and structures in their communities and and last week we we began to look at how it is what is what the normal means is by which god renews people all of it's grounded in the life death and resurrection of jesus but how does that get communicated to us and what we looked last week at was the word of god the bible Right? That, that God's word comes to us it shows us who God is shows us who we are and it shows us what God has done to rescue us right? and, and some of you will remember that what, what that's meant to lead us to is, is worship and conviction and celebration right? worship as we see who God is and how great and magnificent he is conviction how, when we see who we are how broken and needy and then celebration we look to see how great God's grace is greater than all of my sin. This week we hit another needed step in renewal, and it it kind of hits us in the midst of what we looked at last week, and and to some extent in the midst of what we're going to look at next week, and that's confession. So if you have your place in Nehemiah 9, I'm just going to be reading the first five verses, so if you'd stand in honor of God's Word. We'll be preaching on the whole thing, but I just, just for the sake of context, we are going to read the first five, five verses. As we do that, let me remind us, this, this is God's Word. This is not something that Christians or the church or anyone decided upon, that we said, hey, we like the, these books instead of others. This is God's Word. Jesus said, the, my sheep hear my voice. And God's people have done only, all we've ever done is recognize the voice of the shepherd in his Word. And this is a word that we don't claim. It lays claim to us. So hear it as it does that this morning. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherabiah, Bani, and Hanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani... Hashbaneah, Sherabiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This is God's word and it is for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Or we are about to tread into dangerous waters. Because what we're about to discuss is the exposure of who we really are. There is not a person in this room who wants to walk down that road right now, least of all me. And so I pray for us that you would give us grace. Give us grace to see that though all of our instincts Tell us that when we are known, we will be rejected and destroyed. Give us grace to see through this passage today. That the God that we worship is a God who knows us fully and loves us completely. I can't communicate that, Lord. I'm not, I'm not up to the task. No, no one is. That's got to be from you. And so we ask, Lord, would you please just speak to us? Would you preach your gospel to us? Help us to know freedom. Help us to know that renewal that we've been looking to these last nine weeks. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, when I say the word confession... Most of us, if we're being honest, probably think of some darkened booth, right? The two little chambers in it with a little mesh screen beside them and some silhouetted person on the other side. Say the word confession and it draws out some cultural sense of shame. A kind of Hawthornian sense of self-abuse, right? Scarlet letter, okay, Hawthorne, okay, anyway. Uh, so... Maybe, maybe even the trappings of institutional will to power over us. If we are honest with ourselves, the notion of confession is both confusing and terrifying. Because on the one hand, we don't know what it means. We don't know what it means. And on the other, we're terrified of what it could mean. And in the background of all of this remains this vague sense of another. This person, this one that we've offended that we've wronged and are held accountable to. Because after all, everyone knows confession is relational, right? You confess to persons, not to law codes, not to morals. You confess to persons. And all of this works together to make it even more difficult to grasp, more countercultural, that our renewal as individuals and, and, and that being an, a means to the renewal of our community is tied up with confession. The Bible would argue that without it, renewal is impossible and so that's why we're addressing this this morning. Uh, we're going to we're going to look at this this entire chapter uh, in three sections, three three ways. We're going to look at uh, confessing God's story, we're going to look at confessing our story, and then we're going to look at confession and renewal, okay? Let's get started. We've got a lot to do. So this, this passage is huge. We're going to be jumping around a little, so stay clued in if you can. Uh, you won't have the normal kind of uh, passage clues up on the screen. It was just too much to put in. So, so just stay as clued in as you can. Let's get started with Confessing God's story. Let me set the scene really quick as we saw it in the first five verses. Okay? Um, the, the people have gathered once again, right? Last week we heard they gathered. They heard the word of God. As they heard the word of God, they, were, they began weeping, right? And, and, and then and they were sent away to go celebrate like you don't get it. This is the gospel. I know we're all broken, but go celebrate. And so this is three weeks later. They've, they've done... I, t- I said last week that, that uh, especially in the Reformed tradition, that we're part of, we're terrible with celebration. When's the last time you've been to a three-week-long celebration? Because God is that good. Never? Okay, so anyway. So three week long celebration and now they're back. They're coming back together. But this time they have come specifically to confess their sins. And verse 3 tells us they stood up. They heard the law read for a quarter of the day. That's three hours. Three hours. Okay? I want to know how the nursery workers were doing after that. Okay, three hours. So... And then they made confession and worshipped for another three hours. Serious. This is serious stuff. And in the midst of this comes this prayer that we are given throughout the rest of the chapter. And what this prayer does is it gives us a sense of what goes into confession. And the first is what it does as it speaks of who God is. Look it down in verse 6. If you have your Bibles out with you. He says, You are Lord. You are the Lord. You alone. You alone. In other words, God is the only God. When he says, Lord, that, that's in all capital letters in your Bibles, that's the, the covenant name of God. The, the name of God that he has revealed to his people to speak to the fact that he is committed to them by his promises. You, Lord, are God alone. God is the only God. In, in verse 6, he's is, he is called the creator. He's the creator of everything there is, right? In verse 8, "...you kept your promise for you are righteous or, or, or faithful." In verse 17, skipping down a little further, you are, God, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I could go on. That, that last little bit should have been familiar if you were here last week, right? Because we talked about Exodus 34 when God reveals His name to Moses. That's right from that. Again, the, the Word of God is not far from this. It's in the midst of it. They are confessing who God is. The point here is that confession... Confession begins ultimately, even when it's simply assumed, it begins ultimately with who God is. You see, the Bible is rather stubborn about the assertion that you and I were made to know God. That we were made to be in relationship with God. To walk with Him in the cool of the day, as it says in Genesis. But the problem is, is that, because, is that now, because of our sin, we strive for independence from him. We want to be separate from him, uh, to, to, to be away from him. And that's because we came to believe a lie. The lie that God doesn't love us, that he's out to get us, that he is, he's trying to use us, that he's holding us back. And so confession begins first and foremost, at least confession as the Bible understands it, begins first and foremost with the rejection of that lie. And coming to God as he reveals himself, we confess who God is. Because you see, what we see in this passage is that God is powerful. That he created everything and he preserves it. Which is another way to say he governs it. That it's not outside of his control. That all of it is still part, he still is speaking the words that keep it all held together. He's not the clockmaker. Spins a thing up, sends it out and is distant from it, right? I know most of us interact with God as if that's who he is. At least if you're anything like me. But, but instead, he is the creator and the preserver of it. We, we see that he takes the initiative in these passages. That he, that he rescues, that, that he makes promises to us and keeps them. That he's called righteous and faithful. We see in this, in, in, in this prayer that he cares for his people. That he feeds them, that he protects them and forgives them. We see that He speaks in in verses 20 and 30 and that He has mercy. This is not the image of God that most of us carry, is it? This is a person. An ultimate person, certainly, right? I mean, you kind of have to be if you're going to speak the Word into existence and then keep saying the words that hold it all together that governs all of creation. And I don't just mean like the birds and the trees. I mean, us governs it all but he is a person nonetheless. This is someone who is relational, who interacts, who can be wronged, right? And yet who continues to pursue even when we have forsaken him. It is important to begin here. Because if God isn't like this, then confession is wrong-headed. It's completely wrong-headed. If God's not ultimate and the creator of all things, the ruler of all things, and we do not owe Him our allegiance. He's just another created being like any other. If God is not holy, righteous, and perfect, then neither is His standard. So who cares if we meet it or not? And if God isn't merciful and forgiving, then confession is ridiculous. Why would you do it? You have to begin with who God is. But you continue, though, with what God has done. Okay, Let's, let's go there. So the whole prayer from verse 6 through verse 31 is a kind of recounting of the story of how God has interacted with his people. All right, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you probably noticed some of that. You notice I'm talking about God and creation. You probably notice other things, like it talked about Abraham. It begins, kind of it skips from creation down to Abraham. Now, that can be a little confusing, so let me fill in that gap. Because... You know, uh, for most of us, even if we grew up in in a a church context, uh, the only thing we know about Abraham is that he had many sons, and many sons had Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, right? So, but but here's here's the big deal about Abraham. After God created humanity, like I said earlier, we became convinced of that lie, right? And when we became convinced of that, we we turned from God, we betrayed Him relationally, okay? Betrayed Him. And, and I use that language a lot, but I want us to understand exactly what that means, because when we think of sin, if I were to say the word sin, most of us in this room would think uh, breaking curfew, right? Oops, stayed out a little too late. What's the big deal anyway? But that's not the way the Bible talks about sin. It talks about sin as a betrayal, more like adultery. That ain't breaking curfew yet. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's serious. And that's not against a code. That's against a person who's now wounded. So we betrayed him. And what God could have done is he could have simply judged humanity right there. He could have just put an end to us. But he didn't. Instead, he promised to deal with our sin. To deal with it. To to reconcile us to himself. Not to say, y'all better go fix this again, most of our images of God kind of revolve around there. But instead to say, no, no, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to take care of this. And he begins working out that plan through this dude, Abraham, promising to deal with our sin through his family, that his family would be part of the solution. So you see, God's promises to Abraham are a big deal. So that's why he talks about Abraham. And then in verses 9 to 21, they deal with the exodus. That's the story of Abraham's family after they had gotten big and they went down to Egypt and they they, they grew so big and the Pharaoh got a little scared of them so he made them all slaves. And they're slaves and God is rescuing them from their slavery. That's what we call the exodus. As God rescues them from their slavery in Egypt. And then verses 22 to 25 are the story of that same family entering into the land that God had promised. If you know your Bibles, okay, uh, that, that is we're entering into the book of Joshua. And so um, that is that is God bringing his people into the land that he had promised. Of, of God giving them the land and conquering nations before them. And then verses 26 to 28, that's, again, if you know your Bible, that we're moving to the story of the judges where, where um they turned away from God in the land and, and God uh, continually would raise up for them rescuers. These little, very charismatic leaders who were, who were great uh, tacticians or warriors and they would raise up and, and deliver God's people from those that were oppressing them. And then verses 29 to 31 are kind of the story of God dealing with Abraham's family once they had established themselves. It's a recounting of the story of the Old Testament up to the point where we have Nehemiah. Now, here's why that's important. What we see God doing in all of this is being faithful to his promise, continually moving uh, towards a people who didn't want anything to do with him. You can't read this prayer and, and think like, well, these were pretty good folks. They were doing all right. They were religious. They kept. What you see in this story is God continually moving towards a people who didn't want anything to do with them, of, of forgiving them after they had spit in his face. It is crazy. Everywhere in these verses, God is acting, God is initiating, God is responding to wrongs done to him with love and mercy. And look, this matters for confession. Because if God has no track record of, for, of goodness, no, no history of being merciful, no story of love, who is likely to bring their wrongs to Him? Are you? If you don't have a track record of God saying like, of, of God showing that God is, is merciful to those who return to Him, who are jacked up, right? The story of the Old Testament is not a bunch of like half-good people, good, moral, middle-class people doing all right. Abraham literally prostituted his wife to the Egyptian king. God's people, as Moses is up on the mountain receiving God's law, they're down in the valley making an idol saying, I don't know who this Moses dude is. You don't? It's the guy who took the stick and stuck it in the, in the sea and it went... And the water got out of the way. Yeah, I don't know him. Let's make a cow and worship that. And then as Moses is coming down the mountain, they're, they're having like a crazy rave party uh, with, with crazy beats and, and stuff that I shouldn't be talking about from the pulpit. As Some of my elders are like, no. Right? So like, that's, that's what's going on. And then we get into the judges, and the judges, even the deliverers that God raised up for them, we're not model citizens. Samson, strong old Samson, long hair. I don't have time to get into Samson. All right. <laughs> Broken. These people were not seeking after God, but he's constantly, consistently pursuing them with everything that he is. What we see in this prayer, what we see in the Bible, is not a God who's looking for a reason to judge, but who is looking for a reason to be merciful. Just as an aside, in the prophets, one of the stories that always just grabbed my attention, grabbed my heart, and it's it's because I'm so so messed up, that it was just really comforting to me, is when um, God's people are, God is calling to His people, He's saying, come on, like, just stay with me. And, and, and you know that, most of you know that he's got these things called the Ten Commandments. It's the Big Ten. It's the Big Ten. Uh, the, the laws that he gave. It's the moral law, what we call it. And, and you know, God is basically saying to, to be part of the new humanity, to, to be in reconciled relationship with him, to walk with him in faithfulness and uprightness is to, to model Those. But people are so messed up. I'm so messed up. They were so messed up that in the midst of this prophetic talk and the, the, it's called an oracle. It's, just big, big, it's a sermon. He's just preaching a sermon. When he says God is basically speaking through the prophet and he's saying, listen, I know you can't keep all... Can you just do one good Sabbath? Exile's coming. Judgment's coming. But I don't want... If you can just do one good Sabbath... Not a million of them, not the whole 10. Can you just keep number four once? They can't. <laughs> but the point is is that when we confess, we are confessing not just who God is, but we are basing our confession on a belief that God will meet us with love in that confession, not because of wishful thinking but because of what we have seen him do in the past. You with me? But that part isn't really what we think about when we think about confession, is it? Because at the end of the day, confession is ultimately about us. And so that's where we go now. We see this first in this in this prayer by confessing our history. Okay, so let's look there now. Now for some of us in this room, this part is really difficult, right? Because we are radically individualistic people. Okay, the, the biblical worldview, the, the biblical culture of the time was not radically individualistic. They were communal, which means that, that um, the, the sin of one was kind of understood, that we are all kind of a part of that, that, that um, the, the things that our ancestors did, that we have, a, we have a part to play in that, and that's mysterious and weird, and we don't get it, and we're like, no, 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 no. I do what's for me, okay? That's just not the perspective of the Bible, okay? But that is what it is. Um, I need you to stick with me. Because as much as recounting of this story tells of God, it also tells us of God's people. Right? It really all begins in the story of the Exodus there in verse 16. God saved his people from slavery. He's given them a law. This picture of what we were meant to be as humans. And then it says that they stiffened their necks. It's a great... That's a great image. And didn't obey. That they refused to obey and appointed a leader to return them to slavery. Now, do you see how crazy this is? Because God had literally just rescued them from the greatest power of the ancient world. Egypt was, the, the, in the day, the mightiest military of the ancient world. They had, that God had actually come and not just kind of snuck them out in the dark of night... He put their military down. He turned the river to blood. Frogs, flies, everywhere. Nasty. God did that. And he did that not because of anything that they did, right? Because it's not like the the Israelites in Egypt were worshiping God there. I mean, everything that we're told of them makes us actually think the opposite. They were probably mostly turned away from God, and that maybe every once in a while, in the midst of their, their sorrow, they cried out to Him, Well, maybe the God of Abraham will help us, because, you know, Amenhotep's not. You know, I don't know what to do. He did this simply because He loved them, but they were like, Mrs. Like, nope. Nah. You know what? I liked it better building bricks and building pyramids. Can we go do that? Were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us into this desert to kill us? I love that. I love that because I'm like that all the time. They said that often. But then it continues. They get into the land in verse 26. It says they were disobedient, rebelled against you. That's God. Cast your law behind their backs. Then in verse 28, they did evil again before you. Verse 29, they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commands. Do you see a pattern? It basically works like this. Maybe it sounds familiar to you. It should. God is kind to these people. They take that kindness and they return it with betrayal. Maybe they do okay for a little bit, but then, man, they turn on him. Then they get more kindness and they return it with more betrayal. Here's why this matters. This is a group of people who's praying this prayer, who are under the rule of a pagan nation. In other words, they're living in Israel, they're living in Jerusalem, the wall's been rebuilt, and all this is all good, however, they are still under the control of Persian kings, And they are under that rule because they are turned from God, right? They had turned from God. We've talked about that almost every week, that that the walls were broken down, right, because the people were broken down, that that the the city reflected their own hearts. And they are waiting for God to come and answer his promise to make things right. And so what they are doing is they are recounting, recounting this history to show that they as a people have always been faithless, and yet God has always been faithful, And that is fleshed out in confessing our present. Look down at verses 32 to 37 you have your Bibles out. Here a turn is made. And that turn is really important because some of us uh, in here don't have much of a problem recounting the sins of the fathers, right? Or maybe the mothers. We don't have a problem with that. We like to do that, in fact. We do that as an excuse. See how badly I was wronged? It's no wonder I am as I am. That isn't what happens here. In verse 33, they say, Look, all of this has happened to us. All of this has happened to us, but you were right in your dealings with us. They're saying, We deserve this. All that's going on, we deserve it. What, what, what did they, why did they recount the history? It was to say, We are no different than them. If we were there, we would have done the same thing. We are no different. God, you are good, and we are not. It was, it was to lay a basis for the mercy that they were asking for. <clears throat> what do you think of that? Because my guess is that most of us struggle with this, don't we? We tend to excuse our behavior. We tend to mitigate our actions. You know what I mean by that? That's when we say, yeah, 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 I did that, but I had it way worse. I, I had it way worse. Or, yeah, yeah, I did that, but I I was under a lot of stress. I was under so much stress. I mean, you understand, right? Or, yeah, yeah, I did that. But you should see what that guy did. We want to excuse our behavior based on how bad our experience is or was. We want to mitigate it by how bad our circumstances were. Or we want to deflect it based on Uh, thinking that it matters what other people have done. But that is because we have a distorted view of ourselves and of God. We think we aren't that bad and God isn't that good. When we we want to point to others, we are are betraying the fact that we think God is the hungry bear whom we don't have to outrun, we just outrun the guy next to us. Right? And so if we can point at him enough or her enough, point at them enough, then, then God will get them before he gets us. And that's the important thing. But the, in confession, this is not possible. Confession is about agreement. That's what the word means. It means agreement. Agreement with what? Uh, agreement with who? Well, agreement with God. You see, we, we come and we say, God, you were you are right about yourself. You are great and mighty and loving and perfect and do all things well. We come and say, God, you are these things, but I am not. I agree with you about what you say about me, that I am a sinner, and that it doesn't matter how I stack up to others, but only how I have wronged you. What we see in this passage is a group of people owning their sin, owning their brokenness, they don't make excuses. Like I said, they, they, in fact what they end up saying is we wouldn't have done any different. We're the same. This is what confession is. it is going to the one we have wronged, owning what we have done without excuse or demand. Right? Because some of us, when we go, we should say we, we end up what we end up saying, whether it's to God or to others that we've wronged, is, well, at least I told you. Now you have to forgive me. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. Uh, It's without excuse or demand. But it is asking for grace. Grace to be restored to relationship with them. Now, let's bring this home with confession and renewal, beginning with the necessity of confession. That's the hard one for us, right? Necessity of it. The the necessity of confession. Uh, I mean, in most of our relationships... Especially if you're in middle class white culture, right? This is, this is what we do. We, we don't do confession because confession's too much like confrontation. So we don't do that. Instead, we simply want to pretend that something didn't happen. We, do, we just all agree. Let's, let's all agree that this didn't happen. Maybe at, at worst what we'll do is we'll just be distant for a while. And then we'll come back together a little later. But we're just all going to pretend that none of this really ever happened. And if we do this, why can't God? Right? seems to work with us. Except that it doesn't. Listen, renewal must stem from confession because of why we need renewal in the first place. You and I need renewal because we are alienated from God and we are alienated from God because we have betrayed him. I I know that you probably don't think this is true. I mean, not really. I say betrayal and you're like, well, that's really severe, Rick. Like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I do have a little bit of road rage. I do yell at my kids. I mean, yeah, I, I you know, I, 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 pro- I look at some stuff I shouldn't on the Internet. But, you know, betrayal, that seems a little harsh. Many of us here, even if we claim to be Christians, we don't take our foibles very seriously, do we? But listen, the Bible is consistent that sin, that betrayal, is not simply what we do, it's who we are. That we aren't betrayers of God because we betray. We betray because we're betrayers. That it's born up in who we are, not just what we do. It, that it is, it is seeking independence from God. Whether that is seeking our satisfaction apart from God and end up running our lives into a ditch, which some of us do, have done, are doing. Or whether it's seeking our status apart from God and looking very moral, very good, very clean. Both of those, God says, is independent of me and it is evidence that you are broken and alienated from me. Confession is necessary for renewal, first and foremost, because you cannot be restored to a person you've offended unless you admit the offense. It will always be between the two of you, even if you don't recognize it. It will always be there. You don't believe me. I had a... One of my counseling professors at seminary, uh, Jim Cofield, said this once. He said, um, and if you've ever done any counseling, you, you know what this is like. You know when you're hitting that that door, that place where all that shame is kept. When that person sees death as a viable option to opening it. Those offenses stay with you. What do you think is lurking behind those doors? What do you think is back there? Where do you think that shame comes from? You can't pretend it didn't happen. It did. Whether that's wronging people or wronging the Lord, that is holding like going, I know he says he, says, he sees everything, but uh, I'm going to try and keep this one hidden. You cannot be restored to a person you've offended unless you admit the offense. Second, it is necessary because we, in it, when we, when we confess, we give up a few things. We give up our cherished illusions of ourselves familiar with those of you? You know what those are? I have them. That I'm ubiquitously respected. I'm an authority in people's lives. I've got it together. Which, by the way, all of that is, those are lies from the pit of hell. We give up our excuses. Those things we cling to we give up the notion that we really can make things right ourselves independently. Don't you see? If betrayal is wrapped up in our independence of God, if, if betraying God equals seeking to be independent of Him, if you're trying to make things right independent of Him, you are just making it worse. You know, it will just always magnify, compound itself, until one day it just collapses under its own weight and you're left with nothing. And if that's today for you, praise Jesus. Because that's when he enters the picture. Finally, though, confession is also admitting that we need God. It is coming to the one we've offended with nothing to bring but our offense. No excuses, no mitigations, no accusations. We come to a person as those who are guilty of wronging him. We come to him fully admitting it, fully owning it, and then asking for his grace. That is what confession is. That is what it is. And that's why it's necessary. Now let's look to the goal. And see, this is where our cultural narrative muddies the waters. See, our culture views any admission of guilt as shame-inducing and negative. Right? Uh, see, our cult, uh, this is why the whole practice of confession is viewed with suspicion we write novels in which religious people are, are seen as terrible because they go in their closet and they confess and they whip in themselves and look how they just make themselves feel bad. We tend to think God just wants that, right? That he just wants us to feel bad. That the goal of confession is to finally get how bad you really are. And then God will be like, all right, all right, okay, that's enough. Now you can, now I know that you've gotten it. That's not the goal. Look, look, at, look at this passage. Look at this, this. This is why in Nehemiah 9, they take so long looking at God's story. You think they couldn't have as a people just gathered together and said, please forgive us, Lord, we've sinned. It could have been real. Three hours they spent doing this. You think they needed three hours? They could have done that. It's like three seconds. Good, we're done. All right, potluck. Let's go. But they don't. They take the time to recount God's story because God consistently does not meet confession with scorn and shame. He meets it with love. He meets it with love. And this is where Jesus comes in. Because you see, our culture thinks the only way around guilt is either to deny that it happened, to deny even the concept, or to offer excuses. And this is because none of us and possibly fathom the reality of this word called grace. Over and over in this passage, what we see is a people stubbornly going their own way, consistently betraying God, and God consistently showing love and kindness to them when they returned to him. When they returned to him. That's what confession is. That's why Jason, every time we do our confession, says, let "Let us now return to the Lord. We don't confess and then somehow make it back to him. Confession is turning back to him. And they asked for this, even though they they, they hadn't seen the culmination of God's rescue plan, right? That they're in the midst of it. They confess in verse 38, we are still slaves to this day. We're still awaiting our deliverance. We're still awaiting our true Savior, our real exodus, our real final deliverance. They had seen only the previews of God's rescue plan, but that culmination came in Jesus. See, we weren't seeking God, but God, out of pure grace, and I say, I've said that word a few times. That means unmerited favor. It means you didn't do anything to get it. N- nothing you did. Purely out of God's sovereign love came in Jesus. Jesus. And everybody today wants to claim Jesus for their cause. But what he came to do, specifically, was to enact God's rescue plan. Now, we, we kind of live kind of in the Bible Belt, right? If you're in the valley, you're kind of... The, the phrase, Jesus died for my sins, is basically like background noise. Right? It's like white noise going on in the background. We've all heard it. We've probably even said it. Half of us have no clue what it's talking about. Jesus did that to forgive but that is hard for us to get because we don't get forgiveness. Forgiveness has two components that are important to understand as we think about confession. The first is this. It is the betrayed person. You've heard me, Many of you have heard me say this before, so bear with me as I say it again. Forgiveness is the betrayed person bearing the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. It is the wronged person bearing the weight of the wrong for the one who wronged them. It's not pretending this didn't happen. It's impossible. It's not um, just getting over it. It is, it it is, uh, it's the cheated spouse or the the one the spouse cheated on risking intimate relationship again with the one who has hurt them so badly because it could happen again. And that's what Jesus did on the cross, friends. That's, that's what Jesus did. God came in Jesus to bear the weight of our betrayal for his betrayers. Jesus came, and, and because we earned hell with our betrayal of God, so God came in Jesus and bore hell for us on the cross. He bore the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. So that's the first part of what forgiveness is. But that's not the only part. Because forgiveness is not completely one-sided. And this is where, the, this is where we do Even Christians, we, we get this wrong all the time. But again, it's important as we understand confession. Because the second part of forgiveness is the betrayer coming, admitting their sin, and seeking Forgiveness. because forgiveness is about a restored relationship. It's not just about not getting what you're due. That's suspending vengeance. It's about the relationship being restored. The goal of confession isn't destruction. That is what we think is the case. That if I open this up, if I that's why death is a viable option. To opening the door because that's what's going to come anyway. Why don't I just get it, all, get it over with? It is instead, it is, it is coming for restoration. If you come to God, listen to me. If you come to God trusting in Jesus and confess who you are and what you've done, there is no destruction for you because Jesus was destroyed in your place. That isn't to say something won't be destroyed. Something like that grand illusion that we have of ourselves. That pretending that we do, that we've got it together. That we don't need anyone. That we're good enough. Something will be destroyed. That we're pretty good people. That God is lucky to have us. Or that we don't really need Jesus. Friends, we are not. He isn't. And we do desperately need Jesus. Alright, listen close. Because I need to warn you on something. If you're here and you're like, you're just asking too much, Rick. If you refuse to lose the excuses, refuse to end the blame game, refuse to come to God with nothing but the truth, the, the, the statement of this is what I've done, this is me, (laughs) and I'm helpless to change it, then renewal is impossible. It's impossible. Friends, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first books of the New Testament, that are telling the story of Jesus' life, his earthly life, If you read the Gospels, the only people who Jesus turned away, the only people who couldn't get near to him were the ones who said, I don't really need you. I'm pretty good. They were the only ones that Jesus was like, I didn't come for the well, guys. I came for the sick. So if you're not sick, I'm not here for you. The same is true today. If you refuse to confess, if you refuse to admit your guilt to God, I'm not saying to me, I'm not your confessor. I can't offer you forgiveness. I mean, if you wronged me, I can offer you forgiveness. I can't offer you forgiveness to the Lord. He's a person. Go talk to him. If you need help with that, I can help you with that. But I'm not your confessor. We don't have a booth, right? Right? But if you refuse to admit your guilt to God, There is no hope. But if you come and you do tell the truth, you come to him and say, I'm jacked up, and you're jacked up just like I am. If you come to him and say, I'm a hopeless mess, and that even the good things that you do are filled often with pride and self-righteousness, but you place your hope in Jesus, then God meets us with love because he desires our renewal, not our destruction. More than that, he desires you. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, we've gone long. Father, have mercy on us. For those of us in this room right now who are still trying to mitigate what we've done, trying to fill our hearts with excuses, trying to say God's not really that good and we're not really that bad, I, I just pray that you would break through that right now. You would let all of that edifice of independence crash in on itself so that we come to you and find healing for our souls. Give us confidence that the gospel is true and you are good. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.